Our Heavenly Father, we come to you longing for a sense of home. And Father, we ask that you would work powerfully by your Spirit to bring us into the realm of your sanctification, to work in us, to make us holy, to set us apart, to make us like yourself, to show us your Son, Christ. Father, sprinkle us with his blood. Renew us. And do a work that no word can do by the power of your Spirit. Give us a surpassing love and delight in yourself. Make us your own, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, I had a nice little sheet here that I was going to put down to remind myself of the things that I was going to remind you of before I started preaching, and I forgot the sheet. That's just, it figures. So I'm going to see if I can remember them. But the first is to remind you, to encourage you, again, please feel free to come tonight to our family worship night. I'm looking forward to seeing as many of you as the Lord and draw. It's a great opportunity for us to encourage one another in the Lord. Another little thing to, to bring out is that we're going to try something a little bit new as we're going to First Peter. And uh, just as we tried something a little bit new with Ruth in terms of the way things were presented, we're going to slow down. I know you're accustomed to, when we worked through John, we were taking things almost at a chapter at a time. Sometimes we'd take two or three times at a chapter. That's really appropriate for narrative. That's what we did with Ruth. But when we get to epistolary literature, sometimes it's good to slow down. Now, both ways are great ways to study God's Word. There's a, it's perfectly sound and good to study First Peter looking at larger swaths, but we're going to look at words more closely and spend a little bit longer. So this week, we're introducing verses 1 and 2. Next week, we will dig deeper into verses 1 and 2, and we're going to have this slower pace and sort of nurse and, and, and feel the taste of what God has for us in his word. Well, with that, I'm very eager for us to begin together. We come to First Peter for a lot of reasons. We live in a world that is desperate for hope. I remember I was in college, and it was the first election that I participated in. You could almost say that President Barack Obama was elected on one word, hope. We live in a world desperate for it. We live in a world where the likelihood and the prevalence of persecution from mild to extreme, continues to rise. Anyone here who walked through 2020, at least in the United States, knows that we live in a world where submission to various kinds of authority is growing increasingly more difficult. If you listen to any of the news or read any book, or if you have a child who is in school somewhere, then you know that morality has come into greater and greater contention. You also know that identity is a word that's on the tip of the tongue of everyone around us. It's exploded in the public consciousness. The question of, who am I? Why? What is my purpose? Who gets to define who I am? Can I change who I am? Who's in control? 
Now, Peter's letter deals with these issues and so many more besides. It's a wonderfully prescient letter. Peter calls the church to live hopeful and holy lives patterned on Christ. He wants our lives to be marked by Christ's kindness, by Christ's humility, by Christ's courage. He wants us to keep our eyes fixed on the day of Christ's return. He wants us to be so affected, so influenced by Christ that who we are in Christ becomes our defining identity more than any other identity. And so if we were to summarize Peter's letter, we could try a number of ways. We might say something like this. We might say, embrace and embody your identity as Christ's people. You see First Peter is talking about identity. So embrace it. Embrace and embody. That means to live out your identity as Christ's people. Another way to think about it would be to say, live humble and holy lives, faithfully enduring suffering, hoping for Christ's return. Or perhaps still more simply, live your life by for, and in Jesus Christ. Live your life by Christ. Live your life for Christ. Live your life in Christ. Now today and next week, I want to introduce this letter. And that's mostly what we're doing today is introductions. And we're going to focus by way of introduction, on the first two verses. So the main idea for today, that was the main idea for Peter, but the main idea for today is God chose you for a new and holy life. God chose you for a new and holy life. We, we just came right out of Ruth, which helps us understand this idea. Ruth set this up for us, that God means to use everything in our lives to bring about his good purposes. We saw in Ruth that Ruth lived in the providence of God. God means to put his holy character and his gracious gospel on display in and through each and every one of our specific circumstances for our good, for the good of others, for the people that are watching, and for his eternal glory. So today, let's work through the text. Let's draw out some observations along the way. And we'll conclude with a series of hopefully helpful applications. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along with me. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the first part of the first verse. Verse 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, who wrote the letter? Peter. When? When did Peter write this letter? Well, we're not absolutely certain, but it seems likely that he wrote it in the early 60s AD. So you may remember that oftentimes we date Paul's death around 64 AD. So Peter and Paul are at the end of their life at this point. He's probably in Rome. He's probably seeing around him and facing a rising sense of opposition to the faith. Nothing is broken out formally yet. Nero hasn't burned Rome and decided to blame the Christians yet. But he sure is thinking about it. 
Now, why is this important? Well, every letter is profoundly shaped by its author. And we just finished studying the Gospel of John, so we know some things about Peter. And I want you, as we go through this text, to just keep your eye out. Peter's epistle is shaped profoundly by how Peter was changed by Jesus. Peter repeatedly throughout this letter is going to encourage believers to live informed by two realities, living as it were between two things. On the one hand, I guess we'll go this way for you guys, (laughs) Jesus' atoning death on the cross, and on the other, his glorious return. These are the two things that Peter thinks you need in order to live a godly and pleasing and joyful life now. You need to know that Christ died a substitutionary and atoning death for you on the cross and that he's coming back. Peter's profoundly concerned that we would live captive to the way that Christ went to his death, the way that he lived and the way that he died, even in the face of mild suffering, all the way up to extreme suffering. This is a man who you will remember learned to put aside the sword as the way to advance Christ's kingdom. Remember, this is the man who tried to use the sword at one point, but he's put it aside. This is the man who was terrified to go to the cross, but now he wants you to live in light of the cross. This is the man who rebuked Christ, saying, you'll never go to the cross, and now he wants believers to think only and always about how Christ went to the cross. He's profoundly affected by his master's example. He lives also, as you know from John, with the knowledge that he too is going to die. He knows that Christ is not going to return before Peter dies on a cross. He knows that. And he's living with that right in front of him. So consequently, he wants us as a people to embody a peaceful and humble attitude in the face of an increasingly hostile world. He wants us to refuse to share in or to return the world's antagonism back on itself. Do you hear that? He doesn't want us to drink in the cup of the world's rage and spit it back out at them. Instead, he wants us to calmly persist in faithful and loving obedience. He wants us to long for Jesus to come home. And friends, we live in a profoundly polarized and polarizing culture. It's increasingly characterized by intense rhetoric, even by violence. We need to remember 1 Peter. Because the temptation that's going to lie right in front of us all the time is to get angry along with the world, to throw anger back at the world. When the world gets violent, will we get violent? Peter has a different picture. So, Peter. Peter, an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is someone who is specially charged with a specific task by someone in authority. He's someone who is sent to accomplish something. What sort of an apostle? Of Jesus Christ. Well, in this case, Peter was one of a select group personally chosen by Jesus. You could see that in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. To proclaim the gospel 
and as we find out in Ephesians, to establish the foundation of the church. It was Peter's task, amongst the other apostles, to lay down the foundational doctrines that would frame what it means to be a Christian and how the church was to persist and wait until the end of all things. You can see this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, where Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That household is built on the foundation of the apostles' And prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, I know there's various perspectives on what I'm about to say, and there's well meaning Christians who, who differ on this particular point, but it's my best understanding, based on my interpretation of the word, that the office of apostle was a unique and unrepeatable role within church history, meaning there are no apostles today. The canon is closed. Now, as a consequence, that means we need to pay very close attention to what this apostle says to the church. This is foundational information. This is utterly basic to being a Christian. These words, then, are not just for the ancient church. They're for you and me. But we ought to ask, who were they for originally? So, Verse 1b, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you have a handout, you'll see on the handout, we got a lovely little map. We can show a map up here. I don't know if you'll be able to see it very well. I tried my best uh, so you can see that the red line represents a journey that might be taken by a messenger in order to deliver this letter. The regions that you see listed there are listed in order of your arrival. So it's intended that this letter would be read in multiple churches. It's intended to form as a foundational document for those churches. You'll notice that these are all parts of what we would now call in modern day northwestern Turkey. And this is notably the very region that the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from visiting in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. This is the same region that, if you're a student of history, you know that in 60 years from this time, so remember Peter's writing in the early 60s AD, about 60 years on in 112 AD, this very region will come under direct government-sanctioned persecution by the emperor Trajan. If you want to read more about it, look up the letters Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger, you can find them, they're open source. Now, you can read about his correspondence with Trajan and what he's going to do with these strange people, the Christians. But at this time, it is unlikely that they were facing such formal persecution. The government was not pressing down on them at this point. Instead, it's actually much more like what you and I are probably experiencing right now. They faced a rising tide of cultural hostility. Nasty words, public ridicule, jobs were probably becoming harder to come by and harder to hold on to. Tradesmen might lose work once they converted. Once it became clear that you weren't going to worship the patron deity of your trade, they might cut you out of the trade altogether and deny you a license. Sure, you know how to you know, make purple fabric, you just can't do it here. 
And so as a consequence, Christian faith might not land you in prison, but it certainly made life less comfortable. It meant you were losing certain advantages that you once had enjoyed. It meant you were losing things that perhaps you even thought of as rights. Things you thought you were entitled to. Well, that's my right. I should receive this. And all of a sudden, these things were beginning to drift away. <coughs> Peter is writing to encourage this group of believers, despite this new soft hostility, to continue in holy humility. To look to the future with confidence. Because he knows by the Holy Spirit that in this particular case, and if you've ever looked at church history, you know that it's true throughout the world at all times and in all places, ultimately, this hostility will grow out of mere discomfort and into open persecution. So he addresses them using three terms. He says, you are elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's look at these words closely. The first one, elect, elect means chosen. It means to be set apart. When we elect someone, like our president, we choose them for a specific purpose. The point here is that who and where they were in these particular regions is not an accident. It's deliberate. But it's not deliberate on their part. They didn't choose themselves to be persecuted. And as we shall see, they didn't even choose their circumstances. Instead, they were chosen, if you let your eyes look down, you'll see, according to the foreknowledge of God. So where are they? They are living in the midst of God's providence. Just like Ruth. Exiles. This word might be better translated sojourners. It's not that exiles is a bad word. This just is a hard word to translate. I, I don't give the translators, it's, it's rough sledding. Could also call them resident aliens. The word literally means someone who is traveling or walking through. So this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. But over time, even though that's what the word literally means, the word came to mean resident alien. <clears throat> Somebody who is not from here, but who is now living here. And they're staying here. At least it looks like that. Now, different translations will use these different words. Some will say exiles, some will say strangers, some will say resident aliens. Yeah, they'll use different words to try and get at the different angles and add feeling to this word. Because while exile reflects what it probably feels like to be removed from their former status or identity as Romans, yet sojourner probably better reflects Peter's immediate meaning. Which is that his readers, since, the, since coming to faith, are no longer at home in this world. That's the point. His readers, since, since coming to faith, they are no longer at home in this world. They are exiled but exiled from where? They're exiled from the kingdom of men, in some sense, because they've become members and citizens of the kingdom of God. So if you're in Steve's class, then you know that we've studied in Ephesians how formerly we were strangers to the covenant of promise. Now, 
If they were formerly strangers to God's promises, now they feel like strangers in their own home. And I tried to think of a few different illustrations to get at this, and there's, 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 not, there's not an easy one. Uh, for me, one of the first times that I felt like it was um, my family took a trip over to Europe, and we got off in Germany, and it was the first time that I'd ever been in another location where everyone around you was not speaking English. You got everybody around you, they're speaking in German, you go up to the gate agent, and that was the last time we readily heard English just offered to somebody, it was when you were passing through, and right above you know, the gate agent you have aliens. <laughs> you know, who belong here? People who don't belong here. It, it was right open. You, you, don't, you don't belong here. How long are you going to be here? What are you doing here? You feel immediately outside. And no matter what you try and do, no matter how nice everybody is, no matter how comfortable they make you, no matter how good the hospitality is, you, you're going to have continual memories pricking you constantly. This is not my home. I don't belong here. And the world had grown suspicious of these people. They were treating them like outsiders. What do you do with outsiders? You don't give them positions of power. You don't give them positions of privilege. You don't extend to them the same comforts that you reserve for yourself. You weren't going to experience the prestige of the world. What do you do? You leave them last in line. You do everything you can to make it clear you don't belong here. You're a foreigner. You're not one of us. And to be a sojourner, then, is to feel permanently displaced is to feel like something is out of joint all the time. It is an isolating, humiliating, and at times frightening feeling being relegated to the margins of society. Some of us know exactly what this feels like. Some of us might be getting our first taste. So, elect, chosen. Exiles, chosen to be exiled from the kingdom of men and brought into the kingdom of God to feel strange and dislocated of the dispersion. Now, this word comes from the word diaspora, to be spread out or dispersed among the nations. It's a term used by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to the Jewish people that were scattered or dispersed among all the Gentile nations all around. In John, we heard this word in John chapter 7, verse 35, where, where the Jews were wondering where Jesus was going to go to. He says, I'm going to go away and you won't see me. And they're like, where is he going to go? Is he going to go to the, di- is he going to go to the diaspora? I mean, is he going to go away out into the nations? No. So Greek-speaking Jews use this to refer to Jewish people scattered among the nations, but Christians adopted the term, and they started using it to refer to all Christians scattered across the earth. So you'll find this term in James chapter 1, verse 1, for instance. So it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. I think this is almost certainly how Peter intends us to understand this word here. Not as purely Jews who have been dispersed, but rather all Christians. 
I think it especially true that he is, especially because he's addressing a primarily Gentile, not Jewish audience. There's some cues to this. If you were to look at the first chapter, you'd begin to pick up on some of these cues. In verse 14, for instance, he says to this group of people, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Well, that doesn't sound like he's talking to Jews. Jews knew the law. They knew how they ought to walk before the Lord, so he's, he's probably not talking to Jews there. Or verse 18, saying, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, that's not true of a Jew. They didn't inherit futile ways from their forefathers. Now, this is probably a predominantly pagan, Gentile group. But he's using Jewish terminology to talk about them. Now, this use of broad Old Testament language to describe the church is really important for us to understand, especially as we're going to start our study of 1 Peter, because he's not going to let up on this. Early Christians and all the apostles used ideas, themes, and language from the Old Testament to help locate, characterize, and inform the experience and community of New Testament believers. They used Old Testament language to help a New Testament community figure out what it was to be them. They saw the church as a loving union, as a family, bought by the blood of Christ in such a way that brokered real, enduring, and defining spiritual unity between Jews and Gentiles. They believed, and as you remember from Acts, they had to fight for The idea that the work of Christ had overcome the divisions that formerly existed between them. We hear this language scattered all across the New Testament. Think of Galatians 3, 28. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, as a consequence, language And promises that had formerly exclusively been applied to believing Israel were now extended to all believers. Gentiles were grafted in, says Paul in Romans 11.17, to the olive tree of faith as members of the true Israel. You can see this picking up in other places. In Galatians 6.15, for instance, he says, for neither circumcision, being a Jew, counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, being a Gentile, but what? A new creation. What Paul is saying here is that in salvation, what matters is not Jewish heritage. What matters is not Jewish practice but God's saving work of a new creation. Faith, not law. Grace, not merit. Or again, in Romans 9, verses 6 and 8, he points out, he says, for, all who, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Therefore, what's the point? When Peter addresses the exiles in the dispersion, he is not writing primarily or only 
to ethnic Jews that are removed from their homeland of Israel. They're not exiled from Israel. Instead, he is using Old Testament language to address all believers and to ground them in God's purposes. They are chosen by God, made alive by his spirit, and set apart for a life of holy obedience and faith. By framing their experience using biblical language, he aims to help them understand how by embracing the gospel... And because of God's sanctifying work in their life, they have suddenly become strangers in their own context. Like when I went to Germany, I got on a plane. It was patently obvious that I was no longer at home. These people, the day prior, they had not called Christ their Lord, but then they called Christ their Lord, and it was like they got on a plane and all of a sudden showed up in a place that wasn't their home anymore, even though they grew up there. Peter's trying to help them understand, giving them an identity. This is what happened. This is what happened to you. This is why you feel out of joint. This is why you feel as though you don't belong. In a sense, you don't. This is also important because this means that the significance of Peter's words are not confined to the first century world or even the northwestern Turkey. Peter is writing to every believer who as a result of God's work in his or her life, finds himself or herself an exile suddenly in their own land. Someone who is and who must become more a Christian than they are anything else. Peter means to give both them and us a language and an identity that will locate us within the broader story of God's amazing grace. He wants to instill in us a sense of, of our true spiritual identity by rooting it in God's redemptive history. Some of us are probably fascinated by looking and finding out, you know, where where did your family come from or tracing out your lineage? Oh, you know, I'm... I'm, our, our family is, you know, Scottish, you know, so MacPhail is a sept of Clan Cameron, and you begin to dig into, like, okay, they did fight in the war for Scottish independence. How cool is that? This is a way more important identity. And Peter's doing the same thing. He's giving you that backstory. He's rooting you in that context. You're one of these people. You're like Abraham. You're like Moses. You're like David. You're like Joshua. You're like Ruth. We are sojourners, saved from slavery to sin, Ransomed for a new and holy life. We're to be a people dedicated entirely to God. A community that no matter where we are embodies and illustrates the boundless kingdom of God's grace. Such an identity is not merely a figure of speech. This identity is rooted in God's sovereign providence and power. So let's look at the second verse. How did this identity come about? He's writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion, meaning all Christians... How did they come to be this? Why are you an elect exile like the dispersion? You are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You can see why we're going to slow down on this. So on the back of your handout, I put a little grammatical outline. So if you want to look at that, 
Sometimes that can help as you think through what phrases are applying to what. So who, the subject, well, we know that. It's Peter. Who is he? He's an apostle. Of who? Jesus Christ. That's the sort of apostle he is. To who? What's the indirect object? Who are the objects of this letter? To those who are elect as an adjective, exiles as a noun, so that's the main focus, is your identity as an exile. Why are you an exile? Because you were chosen to be an exile. Where? Where are you in exile? In, in the dispersion, as it were. Now, where specifically? Well, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Athia, and Bithynia. And why? Why are you there? We have three subordinate clauses that explain this, right? So all three of these clauses are purpose clauses. They tell us why. Why, are, why is this the case? The first one is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That answers why, on what basis. The next clause tells you in what context, in the sanctification of the Spirit. We'll talk about that. And for what purpose? What's the goal? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, next week, we're going to spend most of our time thinking theologically about those realities. But for this week, let's just introduce them. According to the foreknowledge of God. This means that the church's status, their status and their experience as chosen wanderers scattered throughout the globe is not the result of chance. It's according to, it's because of, it's an outworking of, it's an expression of God's foreknowledge. If you, when I was a kid and we had to take school pictures, you'd be sorted according to height. <laughs> Meant that the tallest ones inevitably were stuck at the back. And the shortest ones were at front. You were stacked up. You were stacked up according to height. That was the principle by which you were arranged. Well, if you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, that means it's on the basis of God's determining knowledge. Now, it can be hard for us to understand this phrase because we don't have the capacity for foreknowledge the way God does. So it seems really weird. We can, we can list things according to height. We can list things according to strength. We can pick out the fastest person. Like, we've got lots of things to make choices according to. But we don't have the capacity to make a choice according to foreknowledge because we can't see the future. But God does. It's part of God's sovereign purpose. So it's not enough to say that God knew who or where you are or would be or would live. It's not enough to say that he just knew about the challenges that you were going to face. That's not what's meant here. Peter means that these circumstances, all of them, their background, their location, their sense of displaced identity, everything is a result of God's purposeful choice. He meant for this. You can think of Frodo and Gandalf sitting in the mines of Moria and Frodo's complaining about this great task that he's been given. He's holding the ring and he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. And basically, Gandalf's response is, you were meant to have it. He says, Bilbo was meant to find it. And that means that you were meant to have it. And that is a comforting thought now, isn't it? We don't feel like it feels like it just happened this way. But in God's purpose, he's worked it this way. He not only knew it would happen, he meant for it to happen. And therefore, the second phrase works out of that, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So, why did this happen? According to the foreknowledge of God. How? Where does it happen? It happens, and I, I thought Grudem put it so well, I just couldn't restate it. 
So Grudem says it this way, that their whole existence is being lived in the realm of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The unseen, unheard atmosphere of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them, almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient, sanctifying work. God means to use every aspect of your life to bring about your good, the good of others, and his eternal glory. He means to. He's not just working with what the world gives him, trying to come up with a clever solution. He means to. God has chosen and set them apart with a wonderful purpose in mind to hide them in the death of Christ and fill them with the life of Christ. This is the fuller fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, 11. You almost all probably have a mug with, you know, I, I have good purposes for you, <laughs> plans not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. This is the hope. This is the future. So, why? According to the foreknowledge of God. Where? Everywhere. In the sanctification of the Spirit. How much of my life is a reflection of this? All of my life. To what purpose, God? Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, in the Old Testament, sprinkling with blood has essentially three purposes. One is to mark or signify participation in the covenants. Remember in Exodus 24, Moses sprinkles the people with the sacrifice that inaugurated the covenant, saying, you are now a part of this. So it sets them apart. Two, it would be to mark someone for special service. So you sprinkle a person, like a priest, for instance. You say, now your life is dedicated to something new and different. Or thirdly, it's to cleanse from a former defilement. So like a leper. If a leper were cleansed, he would be sprinkled with blood so that it would demonstrate that he was no longer bearing that defilement. He was now a full member of the community of Christ. Now, this is one of those instances where you say, well, which one does Peter mean? Uh, all of them? Yes. I, I think it's all three. I think to one degree or another. But if I were picking one, I think it's the third one. I think it's this sense of cleansing from defilement. Now, Peter probably means all of them to one degree or another. By faith in Christ's work on the cross, we are initiated into a new relationship, sprinkled with his blood. We are set apart for a life of obedience, sprinkled by his blood. And we're cleansed from the life that went before us. We're cleansed from our penalty and the power and the stain of our former sins. In short, we are a new people with a new identity. And Peter wants to make sure that despite difficult persecution and circumstance, despite the ongoing presence of our old desires and the pressures from the surrounding culture, that we will not turn into anything less than what Jesus purchased for us by his blood at the cross. He knows that it's hard sledding. He wants to make sure we achieve what Christ bought for us, a new and holy people whose greatest hope and whose deepest joy is Jesus Christ. Well, let's offer some applications. Let's wrap up. We're doing hard study. You're doing great. First one that I thought of for this week is 
this world is not your home. We've got lots of phrases that we use as Christians to describe this. Though you are in the world, yet you are not of the world. What does that mean? It means that Christians should cultivate a, what I'll call a pleasant disinterest. I don't mean a, a nasty kind of shoving it away, but a, a pleasant disinterest in worldly rewards. Those things are not profoundly substantial to us. That's not what, we're not living our life for them or to lack them. We, we don't really care whether we have them or don't. We're trying to reserve our highest delight for more enduring joys. The Apostle John warns us about this in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he goes on to warn, saying, and we know that the world is passing away. That's why you oughtn't to love it. Don't love it. It's, it's going to fade away. You live your life for that, that's going to burn. It can be tempting for all of us to think of political outcomes, promotions, even our purchases as ultimately significant. I have to have this thing. If I don't have this thing, I'll be incomplete. This thing has to happen. If it doesn't happen, what am I going to do? And we can stand on the outside and kind of laugh at it, but our world is designed to make you think that way all the time about everything. This doesn't mean that these things are of no importance. We don't need to have an all-or-nothing view of this. It means that they're of less importance. We mustn't be held captive by them. We shouldn't rest the weight of our hopes, our values, on the insubstantial powers and rewards of this world. There simply aren't enough likes or followers in all the world to carry the weight and value of an immortal human soul. There just aren't. So don't give that power to something that can't supply it. They simply can't bear the weight. And while we're talking about weight, another potential application of this point is to travel light. This world is not your home, so travel light. And you might have to write that one down because I thought of it this morning. <laughs> my, my illustration for that is I took a trip with a, a friend of mine in Colorado. We were preparing to take the church on a 14er and and so we, we packed for this two-day journey, and he tried to remind me that, you know, every pound that you carry, you have to carry every step of the way. And so try and carry as few of those as possible because it's quite difficult. I, I tried to pay attention to that good advice, but I didn't really. I mean, I tell you, by mile 13, I really wished I'd shaved off 10 pounds Friends, aim in this life only to bring with you what you need in order to do what you believe God has called you to do. Some of us, that means we need more things. Some of us, it means we need fewer things. But aim to bring with you the ideas, possessions, people that you need in order to do what God has called you to do. Travel light. Instead of following this world's example, 
especially American example, which is to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Like th that is the goal of our society, to store up treasures where moth and rust destroy. And instead, instead of using our wealth to project our identity, that's what our culture is now moving towards, or sort of the minimalism movement rejects that idea, but instead we, we possess things to project who we are and to tell other people what we're about. Instead of using your wealth to do that, instead of using your wealth to portray your glory in the eyes of others, we should use our time and resources to bring our true homeland to life. Bring people from the world into your home, into your table. We speak a different language. We really do. I mean, yeah, we're both speaking English, but Christians' language should be substantially different from the world. We, we let no unclean talk come out of our mouth. We don't, we don't even speak about things that the pagans would think about regularly. It should be a different experience to sit down at the dinner table of a Christian than to sit down at the dinner table of someone else. And bring people to your dinner table. Let the culture and the values of Christ's kingdom be the defining influence on your financial behavior, on your relationships, and what you work at, and why you work at it. Pick your job to serve Christ as best you may. You can do that in any job, but pick your task in this life to serve Christ, to glorify him. Think about why you rest and how you rest. Think about what you do at leisure. Do it to glorify Christ. Live your life to reveal, rest, and rejoice in the grace and glory of God because this world is not your home. Secondly, you were put here by God and you were put here for God. Learn to read your circumstances and the surroundings through the lens of God's purposeful providence. I don't mean to live by some kind of ungodly passivity or a weak, vain determinism to say, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. I guess it'll just happen. I mean to embrace every breath in life as an opportunity to be and to become more like Christ. To more fully know and to more fully enjoy God's goodness. Uh, folks will talk to pastors all the time about they're afraid to move to the wrong place or what if I go to the wrong school or what if I take the wrong job that somehow this is going to be the thing that derails God's purposes for them. Now friends, most of the time that's not the case. This isn't an excuse to make foolish or immoral decisions but friends, Instead, see the immense freedom that God has given you in Christ and know that it is God's intent to use all of your circumstances to your good and his glory. Look at them instead of seeing it like, I could mess up God's plan for my life. Instead, try and discern God's presence and power in your life. Trust that God is at work in all of your life for your good and for his glory. And lastly, let's remember, God chose you for a new and holy life. This world's not your home. You were put here by God. You were put here for God. And God chose you for a new and holy life. This is a theme we'll simply have to return to again and again throughout this epistle. Peter wants us to earnestly pursue a life of personal, social, and communal holiness. To learn to see our life as a result of God's powerful and gracious work through the cross. To bring about our radical obedience to Jesus. We sometimes think of holy living as only moral living. 
but it reaches much beyond that. And we can see here that Jesus paid the ultimate price to cleanse us from the stain of our sin. That's the words sanctification and sprinkling. And secondly, that he shed his blood to purchase for us a life of joyful obedience. And that's why he says, for obedience. Jesus died to set you free from the power and the stain, the guilt of sin. He died so that we would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. But instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would become a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. Christ did not die merely to make you look different or feel different. Christ died to bring you to himself. Christ died to make you his own. So this study in 1 Peter, I trust and I hope, will be an opportunity for us to renew our discipleship. Or to begin it, if you haven't. Or even if you're standing at the outside and you're listening to all this, I I urge you to consider what the Christian life looks like. Because Peter is drawing out not just the theology, but he'll get down to the very day-to-day practical steps of what does it look like and feel like to be a Christian. And through it all is going to pulse this powerful truth that in Jesus Christ, God chose you, set you apart for a new life, a holy life. And if that means that in this life, we are exiles, then that means we have a home with the Lord. And that is very good news. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, I ask that you'd work the good news of your sovereign purpose in picking us out of the world, scattered as we are in different lives, circumstances, families, abilities, and skills, and setting us apart washing us clean from the guilt and from the former life that we once inhabited to make us a new creature, utterly dedicated to you and utterly delighted in you. And God, we ask that you would work that out in our study and you would work that out today, that you would wash us by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would know ourselves free from the stain and the power and rule of sin, that we would feel your providential sight in all the matters of our lives, that we would trust you and feel a greater hope in you, and that we would look with eagerness to our coming King, in whose name we pray, Jesus. Amen.